0: Happy guy, then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie. Then he thought that he just couldn't die. So, then he laughed.
1: So, all Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-345 of the Run, Run, Live podcast. We've got a full agenda for today, so I won't babble on too much. I've got an interview for you with Wilson Horrell from Lift Heavy Run Long, who has a fascinating and educational backstory. I had done an interview with Josh Lejeune, who is an ultra running vegan from new orleans but i messed up the recording and i figured we just had a vegan last episode so i'll go with uh with wilson today the eat vegan on four dollars a day uh, episode got a lot of feedback some folks were very enthusiastic about ellen's message and some were less enthusiastic and wanted me to balance that out with some fat adaptive athlete stories which i will at some point so don't worry My personal opinion on all that stuff is that nutrition is quite specific to the individual, and you need to find out what works for you. That process may involve some coaching, but keep an open mind. As athletes, we have the added wrinkle of our performance to think about as well. So it's not just food. It's fuel. I'm also today going to treat you to my Eagle Creek Marathon race report. But true to form, it came out so long that it's all I'm going to be able to fit into this episode. So I'll put the interview up front and the race report on the back, and we'll call it a day. Since I'm pretty sure I'm going to run long, I'll cut my comments short. And remember, the Run Run Live podcast is ad-free and listener-supported, and we do this by offering a membership option where you get access to exclusive members-only episodes. And I'm working on some stuff. I'm working on a standalone podcast link for that. I have a quick sentiment for you, though, before we move on with the interview. And it's about plateaus. And one of the interesting asides in a book I read this week about memory was a short bit on what to do when you practice something but hit a plateau. And I think we all know how this works. Initially, when you learn a new discipline – whether it's an exercise routine, or really anything new, your learning follows the same basic arc. Initially, it's hard, and you learn slowly. Then you hit a stretch of rapid improvement. And eventually, you plateau. And then you're stuck. You push harder, you practice more hours, but you're still stuck. You don't get any better. And the example they used was typing. Most typists get to a certain point, and they can't type any faster. They get to the good enough plateau. So how do you get unstuck? How do you get through the plateau? Well, science shows three things that you can do, or at least try. Mindset, discomfort, and approach. The first one is mindset. When you reach that good enough plateau, you self-talk yourself into being as good as you're ever going to get. Your mind says, well, since I'm not getting any better anymore, I must be at the top end of my ability. And like everything else, once we let our minds tell that story, we internalize it and it manifests. Like your parents and coaches always told you, whether you think you can or you think you can't, either way, you're right. So you have to fix your mindset, right? The people who break through performance plateaus essentially don't take no for an answer as cliche as that sounds. And I'll give you an example from my book about how to qualify for the Boston Marathon. When I talk to runners about running qualifying times, they will invariably say, I could never do that. And I always ask a dumb question, why not? If you reframe your mindset, then the question becomes, how do I, instead of I can't. And sometimes it's as simple as making that mental switch. So the next thing, the second thing that has proved to be effective in breaking through plateaus is to force yourself into your discomfort zone. And in the typing example, this would mean forcing yourself to type at a faster rate even though you are making more mistakes. Even if you fail a lot, you assume a higher level of performance and hang in there until the plateau is broken. The key here is you really have to push to spend time in a place where you will most certainly fail consistently at first. Embracing the failure is part of the key to breaking the plateau. Starting at a higher level of performance and sticking with it until you catch up is the other part. Both are very uncomfortable. The marathon qualification example is to start the training paces where you need to run to qualify, even though at first you won't be able to maintain them. It will hurt and you will fail. If you stick with it, you can find a new level of performance. Getting yourself to perform above the comfort zone, the plateau, works hand in hand with the mindset Of believing you can do it. And lastly, when you think you can do it and you force yourself out of your comfort zone into the failure zone, you will be forced to find new approaches. In a sense, you can't operate at that level, and it forces you to abandon your existing approach and try approaches that support that higher level of performance. You will find the consistent areas where you are making mistakes, the failure points. Just like lowering the water level reveals the rocks, upping your force performance reveals your weaknesses. Then you can devise focused practice to fix these failure points and enable the new level. It's a virtuous cycle. And when you get to the point of reevaluating your approach, a coach or an expert can be a big plus. They have seen those mistake patterns before and they can help you fix them faster. In the typing example, Maybe you find that when you speed up, you consistently miss the B key or the semicolon, and you can devise exercises to focus on those things, or maybe switch to a Dvorak keyboard layout to totally change the approach. I don't know. In the qualification example, forcing yourself to run at those faster than comfortable 1600 repeats will reveal flaws in your form and mechanics, and a coach might quickly help you to fix that. Either way, you'll quickly realize you can't run on your heels and hold those paces. So there you go. Simple ways to break through a plateau. Give it a try. On with the show. And now for today's featured interview. Wilson. How are you, man? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm pretty good. Beautiful day, nice and warm. I'm going to go out and do a 10-mile tempo run tonight in the woods for my training. And uh, I'm looking forward to being hot and sweaty and bitten by flies. That's what's on my calendar.
0: Well, here in Bahia, Mississippi, it's hot and it's sweaty around
1: here. Well, you get it year-round. We only get it a couple days a year. So give us the the 200 words on uh, who you are and what you do and why we're talking.
0: I will do my best. Like you said, my name's Wilson Horrell. I'm 39 years old. I have two fantastic children and a beautiful wife. And I got into fitness about four years ago, coming off out of drug and alcohol rehab and addiction. I started at the very bottom and got into lifting weights, kind of doing the Globo Gym thing, found a group over at CrossFit that I enjoyed at Olive Branch CrossFit, and along the way, I found a group of trail runners that got me hooked on what it is that they do. So I've gotten into the endurance aspect of things and just try to stay fit and active as possible. I picked you up through some the this podcast service, but the note I got was it read like a
1: bad novel. You know, you're... <laughs> It was maybe a 20-word paragraph. I'm like, that's fascinating. You know, because I've talked to many people who have either, A, gone to the doctor and the doctor says you're going to die if you don't do something. You're not going to see your kids graduate high school. And they have the transformation. You know, that's bottom for them. Or people who are addicted to drugs or alcohol and they hit bottom and they find endurance sports or some form of sports to, and that's their bottom that's their transformation right but yours had a little bit of a different angle to it
0: well on my way to the bottom i was given the gift to go to the top if you will in december of 2002 i went to las vegas to watch my cousin perform in the world championship of the rodeo he's a steer wrestler and while i was down there i wasn't doing a whole lot of gambling because I was starting a landscape business the very next month in January of 2003, but I was trying to hang around long enough to get an extra beer at one of the slot machines, and I put a $17 voucher that I had won earlier at the nickel slots and hit it for $2.3 million on a quarter (laughs) slot machine. I mean, what is that moment like when you're sitting at the casino? Are you looking around for cameras like this has got to be some sort of joke, right? Well, when it hit, there were no buzzers, no whistles. I could have just as easily picked up and walked away, I- I'm assuming. If I remember correctly, in the slot where you would stick your money, where it says insert coins or somewhere around there, it just said see attendance and there was no buzzers going off, and about that time, the cocktail waitress was there, and I I looked confusingly at her, and she looked confusingly at me, and we both stared at the machine, and I said, does that belong to me, the progressive amount? She said, I think so, but let me check it out, and uh about that time, people started kind of surrounding me, and just like in the movies, the men in the suits came, and you know, told me what was going on. And dragged you off to the back room somewhere because that's 10 million
1: quarters. That's a lot to carry around.
0: <laughs> I knew that life was about to change, and I had a feeling that it was not going to be for the better.
1: So that's why you need to get into powerlifting so you would pick up all those bags of quarters, That's right. right? Just so I, when I can get you out to- of
0: there immediately. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But were you a gambler to begin with? I mean, was that any kind of addiction for
0: you? It wasn't any sort of addiction. Of all the problems and addictions that I suffer from, which is just about all of I just hadn't gotten around to the gambling part of it. I enjoyed gambling because I like to go to the casinos and drink a lot and, and party and everything that goes with it. But as far as just really enjoying the sport of gambling, it doesn't Appeal to.
1: Yeah, I've never understood that addiction either because to me it's kind of like, why would I play a game I can't win?
0: I think if I worked hard enough, I could probably become addicted to it. It doesn't take me much. <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out you're saying, well, this could be a ticket to
1: the top, you said, but it probably was a catalyst that accelerated your run to the bottom.
0: Absolutely. It got me there yeah. in a hurry.
1: And that's an old story, right? With people who hit the lottery or hit something big like that.
0: It is. And I was aware of all these what I would have called idiots that have these big windfalls and then they blow all that money. And that was a conscious part of my thinking every day was I'm not going to be that guy that's on the entertainment channel that was dumb enough to blow through this kind of money. And all the while I was just that I was that idiot that winds up on a podcast talking about blowing through all that money.
1: Yeah, because I think the first thing that happens is the government walks in and takes half, right? They
0: got their chunk. For
1: sure. Yeah. Before you get yours, they get theirs.
0: And from the 2.3 million payout, I took the lump sum. Instead of taking the 20 year annuity, the 2.3 million turned out to be 1.6 million. And then after taxes was 1.1 million. And then after gifting away some money to my family, I had roughly 557 hundred thousand dollars to play with.
1: Yeah, which isn't a lot of money in this day and age, but it's certainly enough to for a normal person to live on.
0: Correct. It's enough for a wise person to be smart and really get a leg up in life. And it's enough for somebody like me to really ram myself into the ground. Yeah.
1: I mean, if you took somebody handed you 500 grand and you're 40 years old, you throw that into a nice uh, de-risked portfolio of some sort and go on with your life, you're going to be fine. But uh, what did you do with it?
0: <laughs> well, I <laughs> I already had my business in line to start in January, and we were starting that on a $20,000 line of credit from the bank, and I was pretty honest in my approach, and I felt like I was making some good decisions. I didn't go overboard. But I was able to buy some equipment to make labor a little bit easier. And so I thought this whole time I was really holding back and I really felt like my identity had somewhat been taken away from me because instead of being the hardworking kind of blue collar beer drinking guy that I wanted to be or that I felt Like I was known as, now all of a sudden, I'm that goob that won $2.3 million, and and who can't be successful if they win $2.3 million?
1: Right. So it didn't necessarily change your narrative, but it changed the way you perceived your own narrative. That's
0: exactly right.
1: And you probably started getting on board with that negative narrative. I did, most definitely. Yeah. And then that led you to overindulge in some of the other places to sort of get away from that negative narrative, right?
0: That's right. And it all happened so slowly, it's hard to tell people that eight years happened so slowly. But the 5 o'clock drink turned into the 12 o'clock drink, turned into the 10 a.m. drink, 7 a.m., 5 a.m., little speed to keep me up, little pills to keep me happy. And before I knew it, I needed something else to bring me down. And it just all snowballed.
1: And so what was bottom for you? When did you uh, have the Come to Jesus
0: event? Well, I had drank. My wife told me she was leaving. And there was a side of me that welcomed that because then I would have the house to myself to just do what I wanted to do, which I did anyway. I'm such a selfish person. I've always done what I wanted to do. And so my children were gone. I was in an empty house. I had a $300 a day habit and the amount of pills that I was ingesting and the alcohol that I was taking in, I was throwing up about every three to four hours. And every time I would throw up, I wasn't sure if it was because I had taken too many pills or I needed more alcohol, mm. but I knew after I vomited that I had to put more of both of them in my system or else I was going to go into terrible withdrawals. And so I was literally at a place where I couldn't live with it and I couldn't live without
1: it. Yeah. And so then
0: it came to, just like you said, sort of a, a come-to-Jesus moment where I thought the, the best thing in the world for me to do would be to go lay down and blow my brains out. Right. And that is what I wished for more than anything in the world at that moment. Obviously, my thinking was a bit skewed. And somehow, inexplicably or very explicable. Depending on how spiritual or how you want to look at it, I, I just woke up the next day. I don't remember falling asleep, and I remember being very aware. And I I woke up and said something's got to give, and I drove myself to treatment. And you said today's
1: the day. That's right. And then because we talk, I talk a lot to folks who have had addictions and then become essentially endurance sports addicts, right? Mm-hmm. And you're always tempted to ask the question, well, didn't you just swap in one addiction for another, especially with the ultra runners? You see it a lot with the ultra runners because it's that same addictive personality type, right? Well, if I can run one mile, I can run 250 (laughs) miles, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, it's more, 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 huh? So, I mean, how do you, how do you feel about that?
0: You know, I, I feel great about it as long as I'm sober, whether it's swapping out one addiction to the other or however you want to categorize it. Uh, it it's providing me with an excellent life and it's providing me with a past that I, I'm not ashamed of. I, if I could go back, maybe I would change some things, but. I think I needed every bit of what happened to get me where I am right now, and where I am right now, I'm happy to be addicted to the things that I'm addicted to. Right. And when you look
1: at like a Runners' Road article, classic article, it'll always be this person was addicted to drugs and they turned around, or this person lost their leg, and or this person didn't and said, well, are there any people who don't have to have something awful in their life? <laughs> you almost feel like you're missing out on something if you just say, well, I'm going to be
0: healthy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. That's the truth. It's a crazy deal. You got to be crazy to run. You got to be crazy to get into this endurance stuff. And so I think that in a lot of cases, you got to find a shift from one kind of crazy to the other.
1: Yeah. So it's that lack of good moderation skills that leads us to be endurance athletes. I like that, and I think that's something you learn over time, right? As you get older and you can't do what you used to do, you got to find those soft landings, and that's a learning process.
0: Well, and I believe that that tiger's coming out of its cage regardless of, of how hard you try to keep it in there. You're born with certain things, and i found it just easier to accept that this is part of me. Now, how do we twist this for as much as the good as possible? It's certainly not perfect, But uh, if it's going to come out in some form or fashion, I'd rather it be endurance sports and weightlifting versus credit cards, sex or drugs and alcohol.
1: Yeah, no, I hear you. And that's a great point, because I think this is a theory on my part. A lot of the awful stuff we're seeing in our day to day world is because people we're trying to put everybody in those sort of bland boxes and not giving them the outlets to sort of get their freak and their adventure on. When people need that, especially in certain seasons in their life especially young men, they need that, right? They need that outlet. And it doesn't have to be a negative outlet. It can be a positive outlet. So I think we're almost squeezing the toothpaste too hard, and it's coming out both ends.
0: What you just said right there needs to be framed, matted, and put on my wall and on a lot of people's wall because that's a very valid point. I think that yeah. allowing people to get their freak on and be individuals is would do this world. A lot of good. Not that I know what anybody needs or what's good for society or anything like that. I don't get into any kind of arguments of that nature. I don't have enough sense for it. But I think that you're right, that it's very important to allow people to find
1: out who they are just to be people. Yeah. Like Caesar said, people need their bread and circus. (laughs) So now you get into CrossFit and the lifting, but you're also doing the ultra stuff, which is a weird combination. That's correct. Yes. Right. And I'm sure I've heard you talk about this on your podcast, which is people say all the time, Well, if you're lifting, you can't be running mm-hmm. because the two take away from each other. That's right. Right? Yeah. So what do you
0: how do you get there? Well, I met at the CrossFit Gym that go to and went to, there was a gentleman there named Vaughn Rawls, who is a established ultra runner. And by the way, that's
1: another great Mississippi name.
0: Vaughn Rawls? Yeah. <laughs> well, he's a great Mississippi guy and it's been real good to me and, and a lot of people around here in this community. Guys from Mississippi have the best names. Don't they? I was in India with a guy. His name
1: was Yule Gunther. That's a good one. From Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. There's a little aside there. Out here. Yeah. So keep going. Vaughn.
0: So Vaughn was known as this runner. Runners are in CrossFit. You, like you just said, you can't do running and lift weights or else you're either wrong or you're crazy or whatever it is everybody's so opinionated and so this guy was into endurance running and so he kind of took me under his wing and he took a lot of us under his wing and and got us started and doing some interval training and not so much distance but more intervals and speed work and next thing you know I, I was doing a 5k and try to do a 5k under 30 minutes and then it went to a 10k and then it jumped up to an 18 miler and Vaughn had started this lift heavy run long 50 mile 400 pound deadlift club which was essentially for anybody that could run 50 miles and deadlift 400 pounds and this came about when he was at a 50 mile race and he looked around and he felt really out of place because Vaughn's a beefier guy, a bigger guy and what he saw was slimmer runners. And he made it clear that these runners didn't care anything about deadlifting 400 pounds, but it did cross his mind. I wonder how many of these guys do have a strength base.
1: Right. And when you think powerlifting in the old school, you think Arnold Schwarzenegger type muscles. But if you've been a runner and a distance runner for any amount of time, you start to realize how important your core strength is to any kind of distance. Because if you're going to go long You need the core to maintain your form. It's not necessarily big muscles that we're talking about. We're talking about core strength.
0: That's right, and I think that that's important. And I want to make it clear that not only am I one of the world's worst runners, I'm also a relatively poor weightlifter, but I enjoy doing both of these things. And so I'm not on here to say that you got to do this and you got to do things this way. What I found through weightlifting, CrossFit and running, was that there's two really good communities out there that have a lot to offer. And there's something to learn
1: in both sports. So, I mean, my audience is primarily uh, long-distance folks, but I've always said that, you know, you want to go to the gym, go to a real gym where they have barbells and dumbbells, not the silly machines, and look for those guys who are lifting and ask them to teach you how to do it, because there's so much that you can learn about your body, about technique, about form, about the muscles from that experience.
0: Absolutely. I think there's a lot to be learned with stepping outside of your comfort zone and and doing anything different. Right, and they are complementary. I think so. What I've enjoyed most about it is the feeling of strength and also the lack of breakdown that I feel. I have yet to be injured in any real way, and that probably has a lot to do with not putting out the way that some of these Remarkable athletes get out there and they put out on these longer runs.
1: Yep, yeah, and I I notice that similarity too between the hardcore in the box CrossFitters and the hardcore specific runners is that they get injured a lot. Mm-hmm. Whenever you go specific and hardcore on anything you're setting yourself up to be unbalanced and to be injured.
0: And that's a risk that's associated with anything. I've gotten up with some pretty bad back pain after spending a couple of days on the couch with a few bags of Cheetos. So you can get hurt <laughs> doing, doing anything that you're doing. So there's different camps that want to throw stones at, at the other camp at, at how you can get injured and, and how you can't get injured, but there's no surefire way to avoid it.
1: So when you started running, at what point, did you say, hey, this doesn't suck so much, or this is kind of good?
0: <laughs> That's a good question. I started running after a emotional argument I was having with my dad, and it was about 100 degrees out, and I was wearing blue jeans, and I had a pack of camels on me. And I was walking around, <laughs> around the block just as angry as I could be, and I started thinking back to high school football. And I I wonder if I can jog from this light post to that light post. And I took off running. I can only imagine what this looked like at at 296 pounds, almost 300 pounds. And I told myself, if I can do that one more time, I'm going to enjoy the next cigarette that I smoke. I went from the next light post to the next light post. And then once I got back, once I got that blood pumping, I laid in bed that night. And for whatever reason, I just felt compelled to get to a treadmill. I couldn't wait to see if I could, if I could waddle a mile without stopping. Yeah. And I just kind of got onto a treadmill, hated it. And then one day a group of people from the gym were getting together to go on a six mile run. You could either do three miles or six miles and true to form with the whole addictive personality. I had to go for the six miles to prove to myself that I wasn't the person that I was or I wasn't the person that I felt like. And everybody with me just said, let's just grind it out. It's not important how fast you do it. Let's just make this happen. And I swear it seemed like it took me a day and a half and it might have. But after six miles, I said, I want to do this. I enjoy this. It's not all good, but there's benefits to be had. Because
1: that's the folks who don't embrace endurance life or you don't have that healthy people always say they hate running or they say they have bad knees or whatever right And it's all bullshit they could do it they just don't Mm -hmm. like it so I'm always wondering how you could ease somebody into Whatever the sport is, whatever they like, and get them through that month of suffering that you have to go through to to make it right.
0: If I could figure out that formula, I would be taking a jet plane to sit down and talk to you as opposed to on, on a Skype telephone call. Because if we could get that through to people, it would be the easiest thing in the world. But I think that the way that I see it is to just allow people to come out when they're ready. Be yeah. open to them and let them go at their own pace. And nature will take care of that. I mean, there's chemicals that are released that I'm not going to sit here and act like I know anything about the science behind it. But something gets pumping through your body that tells you I'm doing this again. Maybe I won't even like it, but I'm coming back. And that yeah. may happen on a one mile walk or it may happen on a, a hundred meter jog in between a one mile walk. But if you do it long enough, you're going to get that feeling, and once you get that, that feeling, it, it's harder to, to keep you from doing it than it is to get you to doing it. Right, and it's it's establishing the habit too. Once you get the habit, it makes it a lot easier. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, even if you, once you start being good at it, and you've got thousands of miles under your belt, every once in a while it still sucks. So it's uh, something you got to push through, right? Well, I
0: have people ask me all the time if we have a mile run, and I'll be expressing my displeasure, my disdain for doing the mile, or someone else generally is saying, I so don't want to do this. And the next thing out of their mouth is, this is probably a piece of cake for you since you run 50 miles. And I have to make clear that it doesn't work like that. I can dread a mile as much as I can dread 50 miles. It's all a mindset that I get into. I dread rolling my garbage out to the curb every Thursday the same way that I can dread a a 20-mile run. Yeah, it's all
1: in the story you're telling yourself, right? That's right. Yeah, and that's a key learning. So what else? What else have you learned? I move you uh, towards the exit here. What do you think your top three takeaways from this adventure of a life you've had? Have you learned? I
0: have learned that that money's not the answer. There I've you go. I've been fortunate to have had it. I've been fortunate to have lost it. And I'm even more fortunate to not have a great desire for it. Certainly, financial security is a great thing, but I don't know that that exists for me. Because I just want more all the time. And I've also learned that I don't believe that I can do it alone, and I don't believe I was meant to do it alone. That community is the most important thing that I can keep going in my life. Yep, that's so true. And that I'm here to make connections and to foster Connections and I need people to be available for me and I want to be available for people. Great. So, where are you at today? What's your mission today? Well, we've started this Lift Heavy Run Long program, and my mission with that is to get the people that are already in the fitness world, whether that be running or biking or crossfitting or whatever it is that you do, to bring them closer together to get people to try new things. And more importantly, I would like to. Get If the person that feels like the fitness world is too big or too intimidating for them, I would like to create an environment where people feel comfortable taking that first step.
1: Right. So it
0: almost sounds like you're creating a space
1: or a clearing for people like you were in the past.
0: That's right. I am a total fat guy at heart. And I'm a total just lazy couch junkie that likes to eat ice cream and do nothing. And I want to get through to those people that maybe... Want a better life and don't know how to do it or are too afraid to do it or the people that don't realize how bad they feel and hopefully coach them out and allow them to be part of the community that's full of wonderful people.
1: Well, all right, man, that's fantastic. You have a fantastic story, as challenging as it is, and I'd encourage you to leverage that. That fantastic story to help people with your mission. Well, it's
0: because of people like you that I'm able to do that, so I really can't express to you how much I appreciate you having me on your show and taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, no worries.
1: What are your links if people want to find you and see what you're doing?
0: www.LiftheavyRunLong.com.
1: That's everything. Right,
0: everything, and my social handles are at lift run long.
1: Lift, run long. All right.
0: All right, man. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.
1: Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Running through the woods in Indy, the Eagle Creek Trail Marathon. In the race photos, I am smiling, but I know It's at least partially forced, that smile. One of those photos is from the turnaround point at the half before heading out on the second loop, and you can tell I'm soaking wet, and my singlet is plastered to my body like a wet t-shirt contest gone horribly wrong. I look a little worried, and a little tired, but that was probably just the lighting, right? Yeah, you know the thought that's running through my head in that photo. I could just stop right here. On Saturday morning, I ran the Eagle Creek Trail Marathon. It was held in a park near the center of Indianapolis called Eagle Creek Park. It was a two-loop course with a wide variety of surfaces and a goodly amount of technical trails. On the trail difficulty scale of 1 to 5... This one maybe got to a three in places, not bad, certainly no more technical than the trails I regularly train on. There were single track sections that were fairly narrow. There were a good dozen fallen logs to hop over or limbo under, spread about the course. There were a handful of steep bits that went up and down 75 foot ridges that had some roots and washouts. All this was the fun part. What it didn't have was any rocks, any mud, or any bugs. That was the best part. No bugs at all. I am so used to being bedeviled by biting flies that it was downright peaceful in the Indiana woods. The trails were well marked, well maintained, and had a nice dense canopy of hardwood leaves that made those sections really pleasant. The race started at 7.30 a.m. on Saturday morning. I had been looking for a trail race that weekend, maybe a 50k, but I found this one and it sounded interesting, so I signed up for it. I like to get off the roads in the summer and do something different, whether it's a triathlon or a mountain bike race. This year, I decided to switch my summer, my routine, to trail running. I treat my training broadly as a series of three seasons throughout the year. There is the spring season that starts roughly at the beginning of the calendar year and culminates with Boston and Groton. There is the fall season that is usually a road marathon or something else interesting in October or November. Then the summer season starts in May and culminates in late summer, some sort of event and that typically lines up well with the triathlon and the mountain bike and the ultra calendars. And this year, I decided on trail running for my summer season, and the event, actually the first of two events, ended up being the Eagle Creek Trail Marathon. Both my sisters live in Indy, and that made the logistics easier, and the event that much more inviting for me. The Saturday start almost caught me. It would not be the first time I've shown up on Sunday for a Saturday race, This was further complicated when I realized I had a meeting starting in Atlanta Monday morning at 8 a.m. No worries. I made my plans to head out to Indy Friday afternoon, run the race Saturday, hang out with my sisters for the weekend, and jet down to Atlanta on Sunday. Everything went to plan. And I rolled out of bed at 5 a.m. Saturday and drove down to the park. I stopped at Starbucks for a cup of coffee on the way. I got there just after 6, got my bib, Made my first Portageon stop. I didn't get a shirt because I signed up late and that kind of bummed me out because the shirts actually looked nice. I lubed up well, stretched, and went for a warm-up jog with plenty of time to spare. It was predicted to get hot, but normal July hot, not that outrageous hot you get in the Midwest sometimes. The morning was seventy five ish, but so humid that there was fog. It was going to get up into the mid 80s. Not a bad day, but warm enough for me to have to deal with a high sweat rate. From experience, I knew I'd need to be prepared to keep up with 24 ounces an hour or more in this kind of weather. Usually I'd just wear my water pack and not worry about it, but I didn't want to drag that along in my suitcase. And when I looked at the support and the two-loop course, I figured I'd just bring a bottle to carry because worst case, I was guaranteed to be able to pick something else up at the 13-mile lap finish. As is my habit, I wore my Brooks baggy shorts with the bike lining to have a better chance of avoiding terminal chub rub in my manly thighs. In one of the side pockets, I squirreled away a baggy of Lights with a rubber band around them to keep them from slipping out on the trail. And in the key pocket, I put a small tube of aquaphor in case something started chafing. I wore my Squanacook racing singlet and a 2016 Boston Marathon tech hat. I brought a fly hat, which is just a race hat with a bandana pinned to the back, Lawrence of Arabia style to keep the flies off your neck, but was thrilled not to need it. One challenge I did have going in was a sore Achilles tendon that I had been training on for a couple of weeks. I had aggravated it, of course, right after I registered for the race. I found some old KT tape in my runner's closet and threw that in my bag. I was a bit worried that the tape might be too old and like one of those band-aids you might find at the bottom of a drawer from 10 years ago or a dried-out condom in a teenager's wallet, and it might have lost all its ability to be actual tape. But I managed to apply the KT tape to the Achilles when I got up and hastily put my tech socks and a thin pair of calf sleeves over it to hold it in place. I had visions of it failing spectacularly in the race, but it hung in there, only rolling off a bit on the sole. I think it helped. As long as I didn't toe off aggressively or land on it funny, the Achilles Wasn't really a problem. I wore my new road hokas, and when I say new, I mean new to me because they are last year's Clifton 2 model that I got at discount as they were moving to this year's models. The Mizuno trail shoes I was training in, they bruised my feet and gave me Achilles, so I wasn't going to wear those. I was a bit concerned that these hokas would be a bad choice if the trails were super technical or muddy. Because they have no lugs at all on the outsoles, it turned out to be a fine choice because these trails were dry and not that tactical, and there were some road sections that would have been hard with aggressive trail shoes. I decided not to carry my phone; I had no place to put it, and I wanted to have my hands free in case I needed to carry an additional bottle or something. I train with earbuds, but I typically don't race with them; I don't need music to keep me entertained and the headphones just get in my way when I'm racing. It's just one more thing to worry about. I carried one of my 24 ounce bike bottles with a slightly strong mix of UCAN. My strategy, if you could call it that, was to have enough fuel, but to use the water on the course. Each time I ran through a water table, I would top off the bottle. This way, my slightly strong UCAN got a little bit weaker as I diluted it at each water stop along the way. And I mixed the rest of my yucan into another smaller bottle with water to create a strong, thick slurry. I calculated that for the time I was going to be out there, I'd need four to five scoops total for nutrition. And my main bottle had one big scoop and my secondary bottle had the rest. And it sounds complicated, but essentially the main bottle was for hydration and fuel, while the second bottle was like a big gel pack reserve that I could refresh the first bottle with when it got too weak. But while I was waiting at the start, they announced that there was a drop table at the finish line for the marathoners who were doing the two loops, and I decided to leave the slurry bottle there and do the first loop with just the one bottle. And it ended up being fine. The course was really interesting. It was basically a ragged two loop out and back from one side of the park to the other with a lollipop on the far end. It had some road sections, some gravel road sections, and some technical trail. And overall, the variety of the course made for some great landmarks. You always had a sense of your progress and where you were. There was plenty of support on the course with water every couple miles, and I was never at risk of running dry, even in the heat. So let me try to walk you through the course. 13-mile loop was about 10K to get across the causeway to the other side of the park, then another 10k on the other side of the park, terminating in a short lollipop. So the race started in an open field and continued through a gap along a field road for about three quarters of a mile. That was a bit dicey because it had tire ruts and uneven ground that you had to choose your spots wisely on. And then it progressed onto another half mile or so of flat fire road with some washouts that we had to leap over. The next was the first bit of technical single path that crossed a couple of ridges separated by a rabbit trail through a dry swamp. And this popped out onto a tar park road with no traffic, then it docked back into the most technical bit that had some deadfall and some scrambles. And all of this got you through the first three or four miles and dropped you into a parking lot with a water table. And then... We ducked back into a short rabbit trail system and popped out on the causeway, and this was by far the worst part of the race. It was a major road across the water to the other side of the park with zero shade, and the causeway was eh, three quarters of a mile of highway with no less than three roadkill carcasses baking in the sun to keep you company, and I had to cross this wasteland four times. When you darted back into the trails on the other side, then it was a 10K with a lollipop. These were well-traveled trails. That is the busier side of the park. There were lots of people out walking their dogs and such, but the trails were wide and no one got in my way. At one point, a dog came trotting towards me carrying a four-foot stick crosswise in its mouth, which could have gone poorly, but we avoided any Newtonian interaction. On the way out, You go down three big wooden staircases about two stories tall, and you get to run back up those staircases on the return side of the lollipop on the way back, and that was fun. At one point, there's a giant tree trunk section, maybe eight feet in diameter, lying sideways like on display, which must have been from like 100 years ago before the area was clear cut and grew back. The trees currently in the park look to be maybe 40, 50 years old. Certainly none of them were eight feet in diameter. The end turn around on the backside was this one-mile lollipop loop. Half of that followed a dirt causeway out along a gravel fisherman's walk out into the water. And there was some full sun here, but also some shade, and you were closer to the water. This was a bit exposed, but nothing, compared to the oven of tar out on the causeway. And you had some nice views of the lake and the people doing various boating things. It was rather pleasant. Once you completed the lollipop, you were about eh, eight miles in and you just returned to the start the way you came. You got to do all the course features four times, except the Fisherman's Causeway, the lollipop, just twice. I liked this layout because you really knew where you were after the first pass and knew what to expect. They had mile markers every so often for their half marathoners, and the math was easy. You just had 13 miles for the second lab. For the most part, my Garmin was spot on the mile marks that they had out. That was the other thing I really liked. They started us at 7.30, then launched the half marathoners at 7.35. A handful of them caught and passed us in the lollipop section, but for the most part, you were passing them oncoming the other way on the way back in. And this was cool because it gave my mind something to do instead of worrying about the heat. And it got me out of my own head. There ended up being 64 marathoners, 241 half marathoners, and 107 10k runners. But I never saw any of the 10k runners. On my second loop, it wasn't all rainbows and unicorns because some of the way back of the packers from the half marathon did not understand the basic mechanics or rules of yielding to oncoming traffics on the single path. And for those of you who don't know, I think you're supposed to yield to the faster runner in general and always yield to the runner coming up the hill. This also meant I got to see the leaders coming back and who was in front of me and who was behind me. And the marathoners had solid blue bibs, and the halfers had white bibs, so it was easy to tell them apart, although late in the race, a lot of the guys took off their shirts, and you couldn't see their numbers. Since my training has not been going so well this summer, and my Achilles hurt, and it was going to be hot, I had to have a strategy. And the thing is, I wasn't trying to race. I was just out to finish without hurting myself and not crash. I knew I didn't have the volume to race a marathon, especially a trail marathon, and I didn't want to death shuffle the last six miles in the woods in the heat. That would be awful. And the specter of that potential awfulness helped me stick to my strategy. The real question was, what should my goal time be? On a technical trail course, you can plan your pace being one to two minutes per mile slower than your road course speed. And I figured I was probably in four-hour road marathon shape. So I added 30 minutes and set my goal to finish four and a half to five hours in the heat. So starting at 7.30, that meant crossing the finish around lunchtime. My plan was to force myself to take a two-minute walk break every 20 minutes. Not a stroll, but a fast hike. And during these hike breaks... I would be able to check my hydration and my nutrition and my electrolytes and make sure to keep on top of everything. This would allow me to save my energy and spread it out over the distance. And this all sounded just fine to me. A nice, easy, long trail run with brakes to manage my energy, manage my fluids, manage my fuel, manage my electrolytes. A sound plan if I could have the discipline to stick to it. And I did. The brakes allowed me to calm down and meter my energy, because of course I started out way too fast in the first couple miles, and when I glanced at my watch around the first mile split, I was running close to a qualifying pace and thought to myself, huh, wouldn't that be funny? The first break allowed me to reset, let some runners go, and refocus on my own race. On the first loop, I didn't feel like taking the brakes. People would pass me, but I had a strategy and I was executing it. I tried not to be slavish about the break times, and I looked for opportunities to combine a hike break with an uphill or a water stop so I could kill two birds with one stone. But I consistently stayed within two or three minutes of that 20-minute alarm that I had programmed into my Garmin. So the first loop was a mixed bag. I had some people around to talk to. I passed one woman early who failed to navigate a log and took a digger. And I told her and the guy helping her that it was, you know, it wasn't a trail race unless you were muddy and bleeding. That's part of the fun. I got passed by another young lady who had a very enthusiastic cheering section following her around the course. And I could tell from about a quarter mile away how far ahead she was from me because I would hear the cheers rise up from the water stop ahead when she pulled in. I thought that was funny. The first loop was extremely humid. It was only 80 degrees or so, but it was jungle humid. And this had me a little worried. I was soaking wet. The sweat was running down my legs and filling up my shoes by the time I got to the causeway. And I was worried about having the right balance of fluids and salts. I was worried about blisters and chafing because I was so wet. As they warmed up, like I said, into the second loop, the humidity burned off. And even though the temperature was hotter, it didn't feel as stultifying. In the trails, the canopy cover was thick and complete with only a bit of filtered sun creeping in. And these sections were very comfortable. On the steeper ridges and the stairs, I just power walked them. There's no sense in wasting energy trying to run up steep ridges. This is one of those secrets I learned from ultras. You lean forward at the waist, get low to the ground swing your arms and sort of stride while you're falling forward up the hill. And it uses a different set of muscles. It saves your energy, and you go just as fast as you would if you were trying to run. Another key to technical trail running is not to waste your energy jumping around. Don't fight the trail. You flow over it like water. You don't leap over logs. You flow over them. You don't jump down the steep hills. You sort of shuffle down, and you want to take short strides and save your energy. And on the first loop, I realized that open highway section was going to be the hardest bit. The heat there was really pounding me in the full sun. And the first time I came across it, I was just running along chatting with a couple of guys, Robbie and Brian about qualifying times and when we got to the end of it I realized my head was a bit fuzzy and I didn't feel so great so I let them go and I worked on recovering and this worried me because I was only 10k into the race and I wasn't feeling well and I recovered in the woods and out on the lollipop but I was trying to figure out if my fluids or my electrolytes were off somewhere the same thing happened on the second pass back over that strip of blacktop furnace And when I got back off it, my head was fuzzy and I was beat up, so I figured it out. That bit of full sun with the heat coming up off the road was probably 20 degrees or more hotter than the rest of the race. Coming back off the lollipop, I started to catch runners who had passed me in my walk breaks. I'd pass them and they'd catch me, etc., you know, back and forth, yo-yoing. But the tide was turning and I pulled up beside one guy and said, Did you miss me? (laughs) and he caught me on my next break on one of the road sections and he was limping and he had taken a tumble in the deadfall section and wrenched his knee so he dropped out at the half coming into the turnaround I got passed by the leaders coming back out and was able to tell them what place they were in how far behind they were etc which is always fun I rolled through the finish line for the first time soaking wet and tired at about two hours and nine minutes And I tried my best to muster up a smile for the camera, but you can tell I'm faking it. I briefly thought about calling it a day. Such is the risk with a loop course. There was a hipster-looking dude with lots of tattoos wearing a marathon bib, sitting on the ground and looking dazed. I grabbed my slurry bottle off the drop table and headed back out. I high-fived the bad knee guy as he was coming in. On the way out, I got to see all the half marathoners and marathoners behind me coming in, and somewhere in there, a guy yells at me, you're in the top 15, and I wondered what the cutoff time was for the marathon, because they had to make it through the half in the cutoff time. I knew there was one, but I hadn't bothered to remember it, but based on the results, it it looks like the cutoff was three or three and a half hours, because the last marathoner came across the finish line at seven hours and 19 minutes. But this guy says this to me and I go, huh, that's curious. That must be a small field. And waiting for the start, I had I had glanced over at the winner's trophies and they were these giant chunks of sedimentary river rock, maybe 12 inches on a side and three inches thick. And at the time I thought, I sure hope there are at least three other guys in my age group show up because that is not something I'm going to put in my suitcase. So it turns out there were seven of us in the 50 to 59 age group. The second loop felt surprisingly cooler because the humidity had eased up. I kept up my brakes and was quite enjoying myself. At the water tables, I'd pour a slug of UCAN slurry from my second bottle into my bike bottle and top it off with water, thus boosting my energy levels back up. My head cleared and I made sure to keep taking an electrolyte every other break. I had my eyes on that open road section and made sure I focused through it and avoided getting beat up. I knew the moment of truth is always around 18 to 22 miles where there's always the possibility your body will just quit on you if you screw something up. And I passed two more runners as soon as I hit the causeway on the second loop. And I was a bit surprised because they were walking. Runners started to be few and far between by the time I got to the other side of the park. I passed Brian, the guy I met earlier, 10 miles earlier. He told me that Robbie had dropped at the half. And I got passed by a surprisingly talkative young couple and wondered where they got all the energy 19 miles into the race. Coming into the lollipop, I collected another walking dead who I assumed was in the marathon, but he had his shirt off and was in full-on stagger mode and didn't want to talk to me. Out on the causeway, the fisherman's causeway, I heard a runner closing from behind on the gravel road, which is never something you want to hear. So this guy pounds past me wearing a full camelback and I can hear the ice cubes sloshing around in it. And I realize he's just probably left his car with some grand idea of going for a run in the park. So we sloshed to a halt out of gas a little bit ahead of me, and I slogged by. And I told him it wasn't healthy to run in this kind of heat, and everybody knew that running was bad for your knees. And then I hit the ground. Coming down a ridge, I let my mind wander, caught a toe, and did a full-on Superman. It was too steep to tuck and roll, so I took it on my right hip and knee and slid on the palm of my hands. I was still picking bits of grit out of my hands later in the evening, even after a shower. It wasn't because I was tired or dragging my feet, just the opposite. I wasn't paying attention because it was so pleasant in the trees under the canopy, and I drifted into autopilot. It was around mile 22, and I had plenty of energy, and I felt great. But as soon as I hit the ground, my left calf cramped up hard and so did my right foot, and I got up and hopped around a little, trying to calm the spasms down, and there were witnesses. I assured them I was okay, and I stumbled off. I guess I had been running with a bit of a limp, favoring the Achilles, and this, plus all the sweating and all the miles, had primed me for some cramps, just waiting for an opportunity. So now I had to nurse the pace the final few miles and avoid making my legs mad. The other annoying thing is that when you roll a sweat-soaked human in dirt, it's like dipping a donut in sprinkles. My clothes were soaked. There was no way to wipe the dirt off. You just spread it around. My kingdom for a towel. Up to that point, I was running really well. I was running for my core with good form, good turnover, short strides. It was nice and cool in the canopy. I was all alone except for the dog walkers. My left quad was starting to talk to me, but I focused on my breathing and relaxed into the run. I knew at that point all I had left was the park road section and then those two ridges, and I was home free. So I focused on trying not to toe off too much and just grind away into the finish. On the last ridge, I picked up some long-tail half-marathoners and was surprised because we were four hours into the day. And I asked in all seriousness, did you guys get lost? And they scowled at me and said, No, we're just slow. I pulled through that last aid station with 1.1 miles to go, and I was limping a bit with the Achilles starting to ache and trying not to toe off. You all right? The guy inquired. No, it's cool. Just some cramping, I smiled. Can we get you something? No, I laughed. Less than a mile to go. I'll be fine. As I pulled back into the long fire road section, I sighted two people up ahead, and I didn't pay much attention because I was really just focused on finishing. My mind surfaced the concept of trying to catch them, but I reminded myself that the only person I was racing was myself, so I just continued to grind. I was focused on breathing, staying off the Achilles, not triggering the crampy bits, just plodding along at 10, 11-minute miles, grinding it out to the finish. I knew it was all flat from here, and all I had to do was not do anything stupid. So many times at Boston, I've seen these poor bastards go down hard with cramps in the last quarter mile on Boylston when they tried to kick for the finish. But the next time I look up, I notice that Through no extra effort on my part, I've halved the distance to those runners. I'm reeling them in. God help me. My inner 16-year-old cross-country runner wakes up and smells blood. We turn onto the last grass field road section with about two football fields to go, and I can see it's a woman trying to encourage a shirtless man who is suffering. And shortly they're joined by another man who is also giving encouragement. The runner is doing that shuffle-stagger walk that I've seen so many times. I'm still grinding away and gaining on them like sand (laughs) through the hourglass, like a slow-motion snail race. If he could run, I wouldn't catch him, but he can't. There's less than 200 yards to go, and I can see the turn to the finish at the end of the field, and I'm going to pass him. My inner 16-year-old reminds me that I'd better make it look good, so I tidy up my form a bit and pull up to them. And the other man is telling him to lift his legs. And I try to be helpful and say, hey, run with your core. And he sees me and he puts on a desperate surge to try to distance me, which isn't hard <laughs> because I'm plodding a log like a glacier. So I let his surge go. But I'm, I'm not going to challenge him if he feels like sprinting. We're at mile 26. I'm not doing anything stupid. But this isn't my first rodeo. And I can do this all day. I let him run out the line, but he can't sustain it, and he collapses back into the stagger. And then I see the telltale mental collapse, and I grind on by. And I put the gas down as much as I safely can and push forward into the last cut through the field edge to the finish. There's a gaggle of half-marathoners walking in the gap. I give them a get-out-of-my-way signal, and they scatter to the sides of the trail like kittens. And I see the finish across the field, and I stretch it out and pick it up for the cameras. I finished 15th overall. My sisters were there to cheer me in. They are quite amused that the guy who I passed at the end is a tall, athletic, 20-something with six-pack abs. I didn't really notice when I passed him. It was 26 miles. So I was lucky to be able to see the trail in front of me. I checked the results. He was in the 25 to 29 age group. Curiously, I beat him through the halfway point by three minutes, so he must have been the talkative one that passed me on the backside. I beat him by 30 seconds, so he must have had some sort of event in the high miles. It looked like a classic bonk, not an injury. Let that be a lesson to you kids. A marathon is a long race. Learn how to manage your pace, your fluids, your nutrition, your electrolytes, or you may get passed by a sweaty senior on the bell lap. They had awesome snow cones at the finish. I had two. They also gave me the largest finishing medal I have ever collected. My sister Jody then tells me that I came in second in my age group, and I was pleasantly surprised. It was not my intention to place. I wasn't trying to. I couldn't really fathom how a 442 (laughs) marathon could get me a prize if this race was in New England. I would have finished 30th in my age group, and the guy in the guy in front in this race only beat me by 10 minutes. I wandered over to the board race organizer table and told them that I thought I won something, and he unceremoniously handed me a box from the pile, and I told him he'd better check the computer because in all likelihood there had been a mistake somewhere, but there hadn't. Luckily I wasn't fast enough to get a giant chunk of the Indiana substrate. I got instead a bathroom tile-sized ceramic coaster with a nice logo on it that would fit into my baggage nicely. And since I was on a roll, I talked them out of a shirt, too. At the end of the day, it was a good race. I ran my plan. I had a good day and I will take that I had a great relaxing weekend with my sisters. And all in all, an excellent outing and a fine adventure. Okay,
0: now we're going to move you towards the exit, please.
1: Well, my friends, you pulled the one-armed bandit's handle, hit the progressive jackpot, won the car, and wheelbarrows full of shiny golden coins that are at the end of episode 4-345 of the Run Run Loop podcast. I really had to work at that one, didn't I? I'll keep this quick. I got a lot of projects going on in parallel this month. Next up for me is the WAPAC Trail Race, September 4th. And I expect some of you will come up and run this with me. Come on, just come up or just come up and volunteer. It's an out and back course, so you can do as much or as little as you like. Then in September as well, I'll be doing that Spartan Race. And if all goes well, I'll be interviewing Joe, the owner About his new book for the next episode. Then I'll be gunning for the Portland Marathon in October with Coach, which actually has some significance because I am aging up another 10 minutes for my Boston Qualifier for 2018. Then, of course, we have to decide whether we're going to do the Groton Marathon at Christmas again. And this would be our fourth outing. And I was thinking about opening it up to the 50 staters and the marathon maniacs. In the meantime, (laughs) like I said last time, I'm working on my next book and a speaking project and, oh yeah, working full-time, traveling, and now that my kids are out of college, seeing if we can fix up the house, consolidate our finances, and what the heck, work on my marriage. What the heck. In the meantime... In order to support this swarm of ill-conceived projects, I'm going to have to get healthy and find some creative time. So I've kicked off a new project in August to get healthy. And this includes cleaning up my nutrition, no more alcohol, and getting up at 5 a.m. every day, and I'm three days into it. <laughs> I'm going to make a short video every day when I get up to document it and see if I can get those up on my YouTube channel, which is also CYKT Russell, and also on the Run Run Live website. I can't imagine why anyone would want to see my blurry eyed, discombobulated 5 a.m. apparition, but I'm doing it for accountability. When I was hanging out with my sister Lou, this weekend, she was telling me about a crime data study she had seen. Basically, all the crime data for cities is publicly available, so institutions have taken to turning the methods of big data loose on it to see if they can learn anything. And it seems one of the many things they found, not unexpectedly, was that certain areas of the cities were hot zones for crime. But they also saw something they couldn't explain. Within these hotspots were small bubbles that were crime-free. There were oases of peace in the worst parts of the cities. And when they looked to see why and what caused these bubbles, they consistently found that it was due to one person in that neighborhood. That person ran a gym or a business And kept the kids off the street. That single person created a clearing for peace to manifest. One person made that happen. One person made a difference in their neighborhood. One person created a bubble of love in the riptide of hate. I would suggest that you can be that person. Be the person your dog thinks you are. And I'll see you out there.
0: And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.
1: Heaven to Betsy.